brothers in the Dharma. It's uh, a great honour to be speaking uh, on an order weekend at Padmaloka. And uh, yes, the theme of my talk is Mastering the Mother Eater. So we're going back to London, 1979, and to the main shrine room at the London Buddhist Centre. It's Padmasambhava Day, it's uh, the unveiling of the Narmanda crest, and Ergin Sangharachita is speaking. He's already introduced us to Guru Padmasambhava, turning the wheel of the Dharma for the Darkanese, that is, the worldly Darkanese, the ogresses, uh, the flesh-eating ogresses in the eight great cremation grounds. And this is what he has to say about Padmasambhava. This is what Padmasambhava, this is what the guru represents. He represents the dharma itself. He represents Buddhism itself. He represents the Buddha himself in the particular aspect of subduer of all the primordial energies and forces within us in the depths of our own unconscious mind so that they can be integrated with the purer, clearer energies of the spiritual life so that our spiritual life is not just an anemic and pale and sort of watery thing, but pulsing with life and with energy. We're not to cut ourselves off from these forces, from these energies. We're not to disown them. We're to incorporate them and integrate them, which means, so to speak, subduing them. And then he introduces us to what he calls a god or demon of a rather different kind. In fact, a much more monstrous kind, a much more basic kind, a much more primordial kind. They're all his words. And this particular figure is known as Tarapa Nagpo. Tarapa Nagpo, black salvation. Bhante says, Tarapa Nagpo, I think, should be one of the classic figures of Buddhist mythology, if you like. I think he should be much better known. Actually, of course, we're already very familiar with him, but we don't realise it. And then he reads a long section from the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, the Padma Kaitang, the Testament of Padma. I'm not going to read the whole passage that he read on that day, but I'm just going to give you the account of Tarpanagpo's birth, or rather Rudra's birth, Mataranga's birth. Then at the end of 20,000 existences, after the teaching of the Buddha Dipankara, that of Shakyamuni not having yet appeared, and in this interval many years having passed, in the absence of the teaching, in Lankapura, the land of the yogas, a courtesan, Kuntugyu, wandering everywhere, mated with a Mara at twilight, and a demon at midnight, and a genie of the dawn also mated with her, and she conceived. The fathers being three fierce spirits, there was born at the end of eight months a child with three heads, it had six hands, it had four feet, it had two wings which pushed into its body, it had nine eyes, three on each head, it presented multiple appearances, As soon as it was born, calamity announced itself. Sickness filled the lands of Lanka. The amount of merits done declined. 
famines, wars, epidemics, and the three scourges increased. And there were nightmarish dreams of many deadly beings. Nine months after his birth, the child fell ill and Kuntagyu herself died. The people of the land said, this bastard of ill omen must be disposed of secretly. In the root of the funerary tree was a poison nalbi. There was the black swine of the tombs, a lair of error, in the middle of which was the venomous serpent, the container of hate. And at the peak was the nest of the kite of desire. The ogres bring their dead to this place. It is the haunt of the elephant and the tiger, and here reptiles instill their poison. It is also here that the darkenies convey the corpses, and here at the root of the tree that the ogres build their tombs. The child was buried with the dead mother. Now embracing his mother, the child nursed her breast, with the result that he sustained life for seven days with the yellow fluid. Then by sucking her blood, he lived seven days. Then by eating her breasts, he lived seven days. Then by eating her viscera, he lived seven days. Then by eating her flesh behind, he lived seven days. Then by eating her bone marrow, the corrupted spine marrow, and by eating the brain, he lived a span of seven days. For 42 days, his body grew. And when he no longer had anything to eat, he shook and made the tomb collapse. And looking inside, the darkenies saw that the cadaver had been devoured. Having eaten her flesh and drunk her blood, he had also taken her skin as a tunic and a skull for a cup of bloody libations. Seeing a serpent, he made himself an anklet for his foot, a bracelet and a necklace. Finding a dead elephant, he ate his flesh and stretched out his skin. He drank the blood and ate the flesh of a tiger, and, his, and he used its pelt as a cloak. Then from his mouth he produced the fixed form of a curd of blood, and from his body disposed of a small pile of ashes. And he who had eaten his mother for nourishment and dressed himself in her raw skin, who in his thirst had drunk her blood, and who in action had perpetrated crime, who had lift off the dead, had a complexion which shone with light, white on the right, red on the left, blue in the middle. His faces were fierce. His giant body was a pale ash colour. His face was maliciously gracious, with coarse, muscular bundles of rough flesh. He attached on one side of himself a row of withered heads and and hung fresh heads about him. He made himself a garland of three fringes dangling with skulls and he oiled all his cheeks with red semen. On his body a swine skin grew. His mouth and eyes were scarlet, his mop of hair red with the mud of his hanging curls. He tied a knot of half a length with five kinds of asps, armed with bird claws on all his limbs. He tied to these in turn the serpents of five species. He swallowed voraciously flesh and blood, every prey which he could seize, 
bore spears and whatever could serve as a weapon he carried. From his left hand he drank from the skull filled with blood. His breath gave rise to all contagions of heat, his nose to the various kinds of cold illness. Manifold and terrifying ravages were spread abroad. By name he was called the one who devours his mother, Matarangara. And Matarangara, Tapanagpo, Rudra, attracted to him all the powerful leaders of the world with all their armies and went on to take over the entire cosmos, proclaiming his greatness. Who is greater than me? I am Matarangara, the one who devoured his mother, the one, therefore, with immense, destructive, magical power. In his lecture, Bhante comments, what a tremendous, demoniacal figure. What sort of feeling, what sort of image does this conjure up? It's this sort of thing that Padmasambhava was up against. It's, in a way, this sort of thing that we're up against. Because this great figure, Matarangara, is lurking in the depths of our own mind. In fact, lurking in the depths of all our minds. Lurking in the depths of the collective unconscious. Lurking in the world. Lurking in mundane existence. In fact, in a sense, is mundane existence. In a sense, doesn't even lurk. (laughs) So from this uh, cosmic figure the black salvation, we can get some idea of the work, some idea of the task of Padmasambhava, some idea of the task of the guru, what the guru has to transform and what, in a sense, we too have to transform. So this is Bhante seeming to relish this incredible evocation from the life and liberation of Padmasambhava of this primordial demon, Tarpanagpo, Mata Rangara, Rudra, this absolute tyrant, this monstrous uh, tyrant, this huge, massive, inconceivably vast ego who has taken over the entire cosmos. Uh, Bhante likens him to Blake's Urizen, to the jealous god of the Old Testament, to Sauron from Lord of the Rings. And in another place he says the myth of Rudra is reminiscent of some Gnostic creation myths. Whether we know any of that, Bhante is clear that we already know Rudra. He is a part of us. We are a part of him. And for that reason, Bhante wanted him to be much better known. So this talk is an attempt to make him a little better known, of getting him more clearly into view. If we can't see him, we cannot possibly transform him, form him. In the old Pali text, when Mara comes, frequently all that is needed for him to be is for him to be seen, to be recognised, to be named. So often when Mara is tripping somebody up or trying to trip somebody up, they just say, Mara, you are seen. Mara, you are known. And in being seen and being known, Mara just skulks away, disappointed. So first of all, let's look at the place of Rudra, Tarpa Nagpo, the mother eater in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava itself. Let's start there. 
with this extraordinary work. It's, of course, a terma, a treasure text, a text hidden away by Guru Padma himself in the 8th century, uh, purportedly, and found by one of his uh, reincarnated disciples. It's known in Tibetan as the Padma Kaitan, the Testament of Padma, and it describes the many lives of Guru Rinpoche, of Guru Padmasambhava, culminating in his establishment of the Dharma in Tibet and ending with his journey into the future, uh, going on to convert the flesh-eating ogres uh, on in uh, the glorious copper-coloured mountain. Uh, Padmasambhava's life is, is not over, it continues. It's strange to think of this, that the life and liberation of Padmasambhava is about him, but it's by him. Uh, and the treasure dis- was discovered by the great Turton Rigzin Urgyen Lingpa, who revealed it in 1333, and is described as the most authoritative, legendary biography of the greatly precious guru. Since its translation in the 1970s, the life and liberation of Padmasambhava has played quite a part in our own order and movement. It's certainly inspired Bhante. You can hear that in that talk given in 1979. And you can see it reflected in his review of the life and liberation, uh, which is available in your alternative traditions. He reviewed it for the then FWBO newsletter. Certainly a very important book for me. Uh, good friends, order members, uh, bought it for me and sent it to me when I was in India. I, I, I wasn't at the, the famous talk. I was in India at the time, hanging on to Lokamitra's robes as he went about setting up the movement in India. And the life and liberation was a bit of a companion for me in India. I associate it a lot with living in India. And I've read and reread that book uh, uh, over the years, uh, returned to it repeatedly. The myth of the conversion of Tarpa Nagpo, of Rudra, Matarangara, is not only found in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. Numerous versions of it are found throughout tantric literature, going back to India itself. Indeed, it's one of the founding myths of tantric Buddhism, the subjugation of Rudra, Maheshvara, Shiva, by Vajrapani. We have our Vajrapani up there. Uh, It's found in a famous uh, tantric word called the Sarva Tathagata Tattva Sangraha. And as I said, it's one of the founding myths of uh, Tantric Buddhism. But in later Tantric literature preserved in Tibet, it takes a different uh, form and its treatment becomes very rich and complex, especially in an early Mahayoga text entitled The Compendium of Intention Sutra, Samaja Vidya Sutra. And in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, Urgyan Lingpa, in his own telling of the myth, let's assume it's Urgyan Lingpa, places the myth early on in what you might call the visionary cosmic setting of Padmasambhava's life. After giving us chapters on the revelation of the Buddha Amitabha as the Dharmakaya, followed by chapters on Amitabha's compassionate manifestations, as well as the chapter on the innumerable Buddha fields in all the directions which have a Buddha, always followed by a guru, 
uh, in each one, which Banty comments on so brilliantly. After all that, Ergenling Patel gives us the birth of Ridra and his subjugation. And of course, what Ergen Lingpa is doing, or what, is, what he's revealing that Padmasambhava has said, is placing Padmasambhava's life in this cosmic setting. The cosmic setting of a battle, a war, a never-ending war between the forces of darkness, of evil, if you like, of destruction, and the forces of light with, as Banti says, the forces of light growing stronger through their transformation of the darkness and destruction. In a brilliant essay on the conversion of Rudra in the Padma Kaitang, Matthew Kapstein describes the raw energy of Ergin Lingpa's verse reaching one of its several pinnacles in this account. And he also draws our attention to the fact that Ergin Lingpa places the birth and conversion of Rudra after the teaching of Samantabhadra. Samantabhadra being, for the Nyingma tradition, the symbol of primordial Buddhahood. Ergin Lingpa is referencing here, of course, another great myth of the Nyingma school, the myth of primordial Buddhahood, primordial purity, the evocation of eternity, if you like. Samantabhadra being the symbol of the first being who spontaneously awakes to that primordial purity which is ever-present. Not waking up to that purity, we fall into bewilderment, the confusion of a belief in a real self and a real other and all the clashes that follow. The birth of Rudra comes after, this time after, single inverted commas, this falling away. Uh, So a strong contrast uh, is being made between the timeless, unific, pure realm of Samantabhadra and error is intended. This contrast between these two things. Sangsara is not just a state of bewilderment and unknowing. It is downright vicious, violent and destructive. Ignorance is destructive. It's so important, I feel, to fully appreciate these contrasts in the Nyingmapa tradition. Some people, of course, perhaps we all, love Dzogchen, the primordial purity language, associated particularly with Vajrasattva in our order, that myth, if you like, of ever-present Buddhahood. But we can ignore the equally central myth of the origins of Rudra and of his extreme violence. We can forget that in Yuma tradition there is not only the liturgy entitled The Aspiration of Samantabhadra describing and evoking the, prim- the primordial purity, there is also the lamenting confession of Rudra. Rud- Rudra's incredibly intense and heartfelt, heartbreaking confession to Vajrasattva after his violent subjugation. Both are central liturgies of the Nyingma school. Ignoring Rudra, ignoring the Mother Eater, leads, I feel, to complacency and an utterly bland, bloodless spiritual life. Fundamentally a dishonest spiritual life. We must face Rudra 
We must see him in us and all around us if we are to understand Padmasambhava as a figure as well as his teachings. We must see Rudra. We must know Rudra because Padmasambhava, the guru, is concerned with the transformation of Rudra in all his forms and in all his manifestations. And Rudra is not easy to see, as the Padma Kaitang puts it. Rudra, mystery without and within the very depths. So let's see a little more about how this great demon came about, his origins. How did he come to be? So long ago, after the teaching of Samantabhadra, there was a teacher, a guru named Tupka Janu. And he ordained two men from, with a different social status. A master, and he gave, and after he ordained him, he gave him the name Tapa Nagbo, Black Salvation, and his servant Denpak. He taught them, saying that however one can, one makes every effort to purify oneself, and told them that brotherhood, the brotherhood of co disciples, is the most precious of jewels. Very interesting names and precepts. After ordination, he gave them a teaching, a rather cryptic teaching. I'm going to read Martin Bord's translation of this teaching, made under the advice of his teacher, Chime Rigzin. The unchanging reality of the way things are is non-artificial. Therefore, one should act by remaining on the fundamental ground of reality, and thus the clouds of the glaciers will melt into the sky. This itself is the excellent path of yoga. In the triple world, there is not to be found any practice of the view other than this. <coughs> the two disciples went off to practice, but they practiced in radically different ways. They understood the teaching in different ways. Denpak led a pure life of ethics, meditation, wisdom, Tapa Nagpo did as he pleased. He raped and pillaged, became a drunkard, a murderer, a whoremonger, a brigand. He performed black magic. He practiced the black doctrine. When they next met, they were rather shocked at how they'd understood the teaching of their guru. And they argued bitterly. And they went to Tubka to adjudicate, who, of course, ruled that Denpak was right. The meaning of his teaching was that you made every effort to purify yourself. Tapanagpo was furious. He was overwhelmed with pride and violence and was banished from the land. He had not only misunderstood the teaching catastrophically and on the basis of that had lived a life of evil. And he did that terrible thing in Tibetan Tantric Buddhism, of breaking his Samaya, his oath, his bond with his guru and Vajra, and Vajra brother. The most terrible thing, or one of the most terrible th things you can do in Tantric Buddhism. And it led to terrible rebirth in the most ghastly forms, even rebirth in the Vajra hell itself. In the extended myth, it was in that place, in the deepest, most unpleasant unpleasant hell of incessant torment, that he asked himself a question after all these rebirths. Oh, why is this, is this happening? Just that question. Oh, 
Why is this happening? And something opened at that point. Vajrasattva appeared and explained that this was the ripening of his evil actions. And that, weirdly, begins the change, culminating in birth as Rudra, this terrible demon, born of this strange conjunction of a courtesan and three powerful spirits of dawn, midnight and twilight. Strange, dark conjunctions. But this birth, as this terrible monster who devours his mother, weirdly is the beginning of change. Lots to ponder on that, I think. Reminds me of that uh, line from The Life and Liberation of Padmasandava where Padmasandava says, and Bhante quotes this in his review, about liberation being found in the depths of samsara itself. How can you hope to embrace the bodhicitta? Hell, miserable and useless, is most strange. Hell is the lama of all the Buddhas. So Rudra is born out of a profound and terrible misunderstanding of the teaching. Rudra arises out of a terrible spiritual failure. No doubt the transmitters of these myths were making a point, making about the dangers of wrongly applied tantric practice, perhaps even the dangers of particular teachings. It's a message to teachers, perhaps as much to disciples, be clear in your teaching. There are also the warnings of the weight of Samaya, of giving your word, of not breaking your word, uh, the weight of making an oath, a vow to a teacher and a Dharma brother. Rudra is sometimes translated as rampant egohood. In the, the, the recent translation of the Bada Tadol, the, the penguin one, it's the, the lamenting confession of Rudra is called the confession of rampant egohood. Trungpa describes Rudra as the ultimate spiritual ape. It's the ultimate description of someone who misuses the Dharma, whose egotism hijacks the Dharma. And when you chant the lamenting confession of Rudra, you're confessing your rampant egotism, especially the way your ego, your pride and conceit has distorted the Dharma, your Dharma life. You confess, perhaps, the way you've turned your Dharma life into a way of making sangsara comfortable. You're just simply part of the realm of Rudra. You confess how it's got caught up, your Dharma practice, with desire for status, how it's been hijacked by envy. How many disputes have we seen within our own order, demonic disputes, which are really all about conceit and envy and rampant egotism, and so on. This awareness of how Dharma life can be subverted by the very thing that it's designed to undermine and overcome, egotism, selfishness, conceit of every kind, laziness, and so on, is a theme that runs through Tibetan Buddhism. I think, for example, of that great 19th century Lama, uh, Paltrow Rinpoche, and his tremendous, brutal advice to himself, to someone he calls Abu Shri. He begins his verse with a beautiful evocation of selflessness itself. You who enjoy the union of bliss and emptiness, 
seated motionless on the lunar disk above a beautiful hundred-petaled flower, radiant with white light, I pay homage to you, the divine guru, Vajrasattva. And then he goes on. Listen, Abu Shri, you miserable daydreaming fool. You remember how delusions confused you in the past. Watch out for delusions in the present. I don't lead a hypocritical life. And he goes on to describe his different spiritual practices and dharma activities to reveal that they're all, in one way or another, an egotistical game. You bang your antique prayer drum, but just for the novelty of playing with it. You offer up your body, but in fact, you're still attached to it. You play clear-sounding cymbals, but your mind is heavy and dull. Forget about these tricks, attractive though they are. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who first presented his translation of this poem back in the 1960s, insists that Patrul Rinpoche's advice is a Mahaati work. That's Rinpoche's preferred way of rendering Zogchen, Mahaati. And at the end, Patrul Rinpoche says, give up everything. That's the point. This teaching is given by Yogi Trimilodro, from his own experience to his dear friend Abu Shri. Do practice it, although there is nothing to practice. Give up everything. That's the whole point. Don't get angry with yourself, even if you can't practice the Dharma. I think he's making it clear that Mahaati is not a technique, a technique or even a method. It is pointing to egolessness, to selflessness, which all Dharma is pointing to. Selflessness is exactly the same, I would say, as Bhante's emphasis on the Dharma as growth, as growing and expanding in human flourishing, of a maturing in humanity. Emptiness, selflessness is human flourishing in the fullest sense. And compassion too, too comes out of emptiness, as he says. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. I'm saying that because we can so easily hijack the language of compassion you know, from the Rudra within us. So the story of Rudra's origins is reminding us to ensure that we're practising to become genuinely selfless. Bhante realised, of course, this very, very early on in his Dharma life. There are so many essays about egolessness, emptiness, selflessness. I mean, not just essays. He was really trying to live it. It was very clear that that was his aim, even leading him to completely surrender to his teacher, Jagdish Kashyap, which led to so many other developments. It's not, of course, that we give up our practices. It's remembering what they are for. Keeping the view, the vision, at the forefront of our being. Probably, we won't become a monster like Rudra, although we might, uh, in a next life. What will probably happen is that we will become utterly mediocre. There is a demon of mediocrity, the bland demon, which turns spiritual practice into something incredibly ineffectual. Anyway, Tarpa Nagpo went through all these terrible rebirths before conditions led him to being reborn as the monster 
who threatens to take over the entire universe, the entire cosmos. He is an absolute tyrant. No one can withstand him. Even the most powerful gods, they just cannot uh, uh, stand up to him. In the extended myth, even Arhats faint in his presence. I mean, he does have particularly bad breath. <laughs> and he has this terrible, malign influence, a deadening, depressing influence on the entire cosmos. In the extended myth, there is a description of how people are in the age of Rudra. And it describes a world of utter nihilism, of selfishness and constant distraction. Don't we know it? A world in which people cannot see that their actions, their behaviour has consequences. A world of depressing distraction and endless torment. Adding, because the tree of enlightenment had dried up, the roots of the mind, that is of virtue, inevitably withered away. So, of course, something had to be done. Had to be done by someone. In fact, something had to be done by a group. A sangha of, not exactly people, uh, actually by a sangha of Buddhas. A kula of Buddhas. The five jinnas themselves. What did they do? They did that classic tree ratna thing. They called a meeting. They had a meeting, yes. Yes, even the five Buddhas have meetings. That's where we get it from. So the five jinnas had a meeting. They came together to work out what to do, or rather, who was going to clear up the mess. Who was going to vanquish Rudra? Well, it had to be those who were connected to Rudra, karmically connected, who bore some responsibility for the situation. So it had to be his teacher, and his Vajra brother, Tubka, Shonu and Dempak. The five Buddha says, you're going to have to sort him out. They would have to do something. We can never actually get away from our karmic connections. We can never get away from our responsibilities. Much as we would like to, much as we'd like to pretend that they aren't there, they're there. And you have to see them through. If not in this life, then in future lives. So Tubka and Dempak, of course, had followed the path. They'd completed the path. The text says they were now vowed to Vajrasattva and Vajrapani, Vajra beings, very significant. So they were entrusted to subdue, convert, and transform Rudra, the mother eater. So they took a particular form to do this. In the Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava, it says a horse and a sow, but really it's higher griva the horse-headed, wrathful emanation of Avalokiteshra and his consort, Vajravarahi. And off they become, off the, a, a darkening form. And off they go, becoming very tiny. They become very small. And they buzz around the terrible, monstrous body of Rudra, like tiny little flies, like tiny little beads. They just buzz around him saying strange things, sort of teasing him, goading him. So these tiny beings are playfully buzzing around this monstrous tyrant. And they even disappear from his view. And they even enter him through his penis and anus. 
and they move up through him, growing in size, releasing oils and fats, and ecstatically joining with one another, becomes something even more extraordinary than they would be on their own. They expand and fill and stretch Rudra's body. He feels, of course, as if he's going to explode. And the hot pain is unbearable. All he can call out is, Who? Who? Mother! Mother! And a voice calls out from somewhere. End your anger. More happens, uh, but eventually Rudra, the mother eater, is humbled. He comes to Vajrasattva in all humility to all the Buddhas, and he confesses. He sings his lamenting confession. His body, speech, and mind are blessed, and he vows from now on to become a faithful protector of the Dharma. And this is why the Herakas of the Nyingma school have the body of Rudra, of Matarangra, the same heads, legs, wings. They are the black demon transformed into the form of, forms of enlightenment. I've greatly simplified the story of Rudra's subjugation. The myth is rich and complex, and I'm not at all sure what we might draw from it. No doubt there are deep and complex tantric yogic meanings and symbols here which I'm ignorant of. So just a few immediate responses. First of all, the conversion of Rudra is collective. The five Buddhas come together, if you can speak of the five Buddhas being separate. And they bless Tubka, Shonu and Dempak. Guru and disciple work together. So I take this to mean that if we're to engage with the demons of the age, we must work together. It's not enough to work alone. In his lecture, Bandi says that these demons are not actually archetypes of the collective unconscious. He uses that language at first, and then he sort of sounds it in a rather, they're not archetypes of the collective unconscious. They are real. They are all around us, and they need a unified response, a response from the unified intentions of all the sugatas. And we need to get involved with that work. We need the unified intentions of the Sangha to deal with the demons of our age, which seem to be multiplying in their madness with frightening rapidity. Secondly, the subjugation happens through higher griva and vajravarahi becoming tiny, tiny irritants. They cannot be grasped by the huge, vast rudra, and in the end they cannot be seen. In the Pali suttas, the Buddha sometimes, if, if, if I'm particularly thinking particularly now of the death of, or the parinirvana of Vakali, his disciple who was very sick, who in the end took his own life. And after he died, the monks were asking the Buddha, where has Vakali gone? Where, what is his rebirth? And the Buddha said, you see that black smoke moving around the sky? That's Mara trying to find Vakali, and he can't find him. Buddha sometimes talks about going unseen by Mara. So they're not seen, these figures. They can't be seen. They're tiny. And in the very early days of the order, when we were so very, very small, 
in a lecture called Evolution or Extinction, Bhante suggested how Buddhists could respond to current world problems, especially emphasising true individuals working together as a spiritual community. He said this, it doesn't matter how humble a level we're operating at or how undramatic our work may be. The true individual is not so much the king of the jungle as the indefatigable earthworm. If enough earthworms burrow away under the foundations of even the most substantial building, the soil begins to loosen, it starts to crumble away, the foundations subside, and the whole building is liable to crack and collapse. Likewise, however powerful the existing order may seem, it is not invulnerable to the undermining influence of enough individuals working, whether directly or indirectly, in cooperation. And of course, Tubka and Dempak enter the body of Rudra in his most sensitive of places, his penis and his anus. Something to ponder. We need to find the weak places of the demon, the tender places, the tender places of samsara, which is really something to ponder. Uh, They are not intimidated by the cosmic tyrant. They find his vulnerable spots. Similarly, we need to find the vulnerable places of samsara within ourselves and in the world around us. Where are they? I wonder. I'm not going to ponder that. And finally, the conversion of Rudra is a game. Horsehead and Diamond Sow are playing. They are enjoying themselves. When we speak of the subjugation of demons, it can all sound so very heavy so self-important. But that's not how you do it. Because you don't see the demon as ultimately evil. Not evil at all. And he says this in the lecture. He's just lost and confused. That's where the distortion has come from. And when they enter Rudra, they join in ecstasy, in bliss, in glory. Because they know that everything, actually, even Rudra himself, is the expression of the vast, luminous, blissful emptiness. So if we want to face and engage and transform the demonic in ourselves and all around us, we need something of this. If we get all anxious and uptight and frightened and moralistic, we're just part of the demonic. We need to stay inspired. We need to stay joyful and creative. We need a very strong sense of the beautiful, Dudon Rinpoche describes the beauty of Padmasambhava in one of his songs, saying that it's the beauty of his appearance which really brings about the transformation of the demonic, of the gods and demons. They're just entranced by his beauty and they just want to serve. And Rudra never really goes away. He keeps returning. He keeps coming back, taking new forms, which means that our creativity, our ingenuity, needs to keep refreshing so that we can respond. And this is where the Turton, the treasure finder, comes in, which Bhante spoke about in that lecture in 1979. The Nyingmapa tradition tells us that Padmasambhava hid in Tibet so many Dharma treasures for future generations Dharma treasures that would be especially effective for future men. 
So he says, the guru of times past is not the guru of future men. He will take a new form. As well as hiding the treasures, Padmasambhava blessed his great disciples as the future treasure revealers, the turtons, the treasure finders. He transmitted the essence of his mind to them and somehow or other imprinted the teaching into the depths of their minds so that it would ripen when the conditions came together in the future. So be very careful when you talk about turtons and termins. You are making quite a claim if you say you've found a treasure or if you regard somebody else as a turton. You're saying that they have received Padmasambhava's mind and they are the incarnation, the emanation of one of his 25 great disciples. The Terma tradition is a remarkable tradition and it continues unto this day. It's not just about finding texts, it's finding all sorts of objects, images, magic coffers. Uh, I've re- recently read a, um, a dissertation by an Italian academic, I think he's also a Tibetan Buddhist, and it's the story of a 20th century Turton. It's so, so interesting, so fascinating, his discovery of objects. And it's very place-specific, the tre- treasure tradition, very place-specific. And it's as much about memory as it is about the pure mind. Such an amazing thing. So it's a living tradition. So yes, it's not just time-specific, it's place-specific. Place is so very important. So many people these days have no place, no deep roots. They're alienated from place. They're in that weird non-place called the internet. When I think of place... And these times, I think of Bounty. Bounty had a very deep awareness of place. And uh, I was thinking of this passage from Augustin Britor. And of course, in that poem, he was describing actual experience. Cauldron unlidded long ago, the tor still boils over white mist from wet clay ascending. Clockwise we climb from ledge to ledge, waded obliquely through the evening, swam through magical shapes, phantoms, mysteries, thick as weeds in water, through voices from the past, visions of Arthur, Merlin, Cup, Lance, till at length emerging the massive bulk of the tower, strong, four-square, stood over us, threatening, protective... It's very, very important, I think, when we think of treasures, termas, we don't just think of text. They, as I say, there is much to do with objects. I was thinking of, is there anything equivalent to the discovery of treasures, uh, treasure objects? And I was actually thinking of Arlacher's paintings, not that he would regard himself as a treasure finder. When you think of what he's doing, you know, pigment, uh, wood... Um, all sorts of materials in that coming out of the inspiration of the Dharma, the inspiration of the community, whatever you might make of it all. You know, we, we, we tend to privilege text in our movement. We tend to privilege ideas. We don't dwell enough, I think, on the physicality of discovery. Anyway, back to my main theme. 
Bounty, as always, discerns the principle when he starts talking about the turtle in his lecture. He says the guru is not enough. The guru needs help. The turtons are the disciples who help. The disciples, the supreme devotees of the guru. In a sense, they're emanations of the guru. They keep refreshing the dharma in the time and place they are in. They continue to enrich the dharma through the transformation of the gods. They keep the dharma alive now and on into the future. They keep finding the treasure of the dharma in the depths of the world, even in the body of Rudra himself. At the end of the Indian section of the Testament of Padma, there's a fascinating, strange and mysterious section on Teramas and on Terma finders. I could read it, but actually I want to tell you what Banti said about it. Tarpa Nagpo is very big. In fact, he is huge. He is many-sided. Indeed, he is multidimensional. He doesn't just exist as an archetype in our collective unconscious, no. He's much more prominent, much more in evidence than that. He can also be regarded as this world itself. Certainly the world as we perceive it, the world as we experience it. This world is a self-centred world. That's the world we're up against. That's the world we have to grapple with. I remember in this connection that quite a few years ago, Shortly after I started the FWBO, a friend was driving me through the city of London. I hadn't been to the city of London with the stock exchange and its banks for a long time. As we drove through, I just looked from side to side at the skyscraper to the right of me, skyscraper to the left of me, bank to the right of me, bank to the left of me. I saw all these big, ponderous buildings, all connected with money, all connected with high finance, all connected with a certain kind of power. I said to my friend, this is what we're up against. Because this is one of the demons. All these buildings involved with money, with high finance, this power which has got out of control. Because this power is not serving the spiritual principle. It's a very significant line if we're talking about the conversion of demons. This power is not serving the spiritual principle. He goes on, there are many kinds of demons. There are economic demons, social demons, sociological demons. There are political demons. There are even religious demons, not to speak of the odd philosophical demon, all of whom need to be brought under control. So we must not think of these (coughs) demons as simply mythological things that you can read about in fairy stories. That's all rather nice, but through reading you don't meet a demon. Actually, you're meeting demons of one kind or another all the time because you're living in a world of demons, a society of demons. You yourself are half a demon. But it's a good thing, provided you can subdue your demon half or your demon two-thirds or nine-tenths or whatever or that part of you that is a demonic darkening. This is what we're up against and this is what we have to do. It's not simply that we're in the midst of demons. The world is a demon. It is all a demon. The god of the world is a demon, and that demon is Tarpa Nagpo. And in the particular passage I want to talk about, a connection is made between Tarpa Nagpo and Terma. In this passage we're told where the Tarmas are located. Yes, they're hidden away in caves, 
they are hidden away in stones, yes. But the passage also tells us that the terma are hidden in the body of Tarpa Nagpo himself. In different parts of his vast body, there is a treasure hidden in his kidneys, another in his veins, another in his lungs, another in his feet. They are all hidden in the body of Tarpa Nagpo, black salvation. What does this mean? Well, if we look at it carefully, and if we want to express it in a few words, you find the remedy where you find the disease. The remedy is found in the depths of the disease itself. If you understand the disease, you arrive at the remedy. If you plunge deeply into the body of Tarapanagpo, you can take out the treasure. You don't have to go outside the world to find the transcendental. You go very deeply into it. You utilise it. You utilise all its forces, its energies. You integrate them with yourself. And that is your spiritual life. You dig deep within the body of Tarpa Nagpo himself, this gigantic, festering, foul body, because that is where you will find the treasure. So this is what is generally signified by Terma, the treasure, and this figure of the Turton, the taker out of the treasure. I mean, I don't really know what to say about this. I suppose the first thing to say is that the plain fact is we only live the Dharma in Rudra's vast body. Uh, we're here. He's here. We have to find the treasures here. Most people don't go off into long solitary retreats, and even if they did, they're still in the realm of Rudra because they're the one in the solitary. And the samsara, the conditioned, of course, is characterised as impermanent, unsatisfactory, insubstantial and relatively unbeautiful, a shubha. And if we see that as that, really see it, see it unconditionally and unconditionally accept that with the fully prepared being, we go through those lakshanas to the doors to the unconditions, the doors to the deathless. Meditating on impermanence, we arrive at the signless, the unimiter, where there are no marks, which Bhante associates with Vajrapani, the complete destruction of all signs, all marks. Nothing stands. Allah uh, says, if anybody's wondering about the body parts, like confetti, that Vajrapani is wading through, he says it's, it's the destruction of the literal mind. That came to him in a dream, by the way. If we contemplate Dukkha, we go through the door called the wishless. We arrive, as Bhante says, at the world of Avalokiteshra, the realm of completely unbiased compassion for all that lives. There's no preference at all if we go through, uh, if we meditate on the lakshana of not-self, of insubstantiality, the door we go through into the deathless is we go into the realm of Manjushri, uh, the inconceivable, the realm of Maya, and if we meditate on the relatively, notice this way of describing it, this, the relatively unbeautiful, we go through the door of beauty and discover Tara. The liberating treasures needed now will be found. And we need to learn how we might find these treasures, inspired by the great Turton's 
themselves. So I want to finish the talk with a few comments on some of their qualities. The first quality that you notice in the life of a great turtle, a great treasure finder, is their utter, uncontrived, unselfconscious faith and devotion to the Guru as the embodiment of the three jewels. They have this intense, longing devotion leading to renunciation and intense and deep spiritual practice. The Turtons, of course, live in a culture of longing for the Guru. This is a point that Janet Gatso brings out in her brilliant study of Jigme Lingpa's secret autobiography. She describes the kind of culture of Nyingma uh, Buddhists, especially the great practitioners, as a culture of longing. This longing for the guru to return. Padmasambhava had such an effect on the Tibetan people. There's just this overwhelming longing for him to be, to be there again and to dwell in his presence. So they are open and they learn and they want to be taken up and alchemically transformed into the messengers of Bodhicitta because Padmasambhava, of course, is the wish-fulfilling gem, the Bodhicitta itself. Secondly, Turtons are deeply absorbed in classical Buddhist practice. Uh, learning, learning the Dharma. They are learned in the scriptures. They are deep meditators. Yes, they also practice all the wisdom practices. They're absorbed in or soaked in the culture of the Dharma, expressed through the living Sangha, especially the Gana, the intimate tantric community around a particular teacher. Thirdly, they have complete and naked honesty. One of the striking features about Jigme Lingpa's uh, uh, secret autobiographies is his incredible honesty, his incredible admission to failure, uh, turning failure even into inspiration. It's quite sort of um, almost comic, you know, he's having a, an incredible revelation, you know, revelation of the Dharma, a treasure. And as soon as he starts, as soon as there's the slightest bit of ego fixation, a voice says, symbols dissolved. And he just is thrown into darkness. And then, of course, he just feels uh, terrible and a hopeless failure and all that sort of thing. But that just fuels his practice. Absence is as important as presence. Fourthly, they have tremendous inspiration emanating from the heart essence of the guru's realisation. Their treasures do not come from dualistic th thinking. They come from jnana, not vijnana. They come from non-dual awareness. They're not made up. There's an immediacy in their response. If you're thinking about it and making things up, it's not a treasure. I'm going to tell you a dream. I don't regard myself as a terma, a turton. Uh, I don't even need to say that because you know that. But I want to tell you about a dream I had which kind of helped me understand this sort of idea. It was a dream I had in the 80s at uh, Ariatara when I was living there. And in a way the dream was telling me about it wasn't... Uh, it was actually showing me how I needed to change. I didn't realise that at the time. I just thought it was a fantastic dream. It was actually telling me something I needed to do, which took me a long time to actually do. I was in the Aryatara shrine room, 
uh, in my dream, on my own, and there appeared um, what looked like a sort of Egyptian mummy, you know, bandages, walking towards me, like this. Really terrifying figure. And it was coming at me, and it was going to do something terrible uh, to me. It was remorseless, uh, with absolutely no uh, feeling whatsoever. Just this thing that was going to devour me or do something. And I was terrified. And I didn't have a weapon. I didn't know what to do. And then I saw this crystal. that We used to have a crystal in the shrine then, reflecting the sunlight. It's the only thing to hand. I picked up the crystal... And I just threw it at this figure. It was the only defence I had. As it left my hand, the crystal turned into a light, a green uh, vadra made of light. Uh, It was completely immediate, and it flew towards this mummy. And by the way, when the figure came to me, I should just add, I immediately had this realisation. This is what happens when you don't practice the Dharma properly. This is the spectre of Buddhism. Anyway, I threw this crystal that turned into this green light badra. It hit the mummy, who collapsed and vanished. And I went over to the spot on the floor of the shrine room where it was. And what was before me were these stones from which crystals were emerging. They were alive. Precious stones were arriving out of this hard stone. So I want to, the the illustration of, as I said, it was, I think, a teaching about how I needed to change, which I don't think I, it took me a long time to heed. But I think what I want to get at is the immediacy of response of a treasure finder. It's not coming from ideas. It's immediate. Fifthly, a turton has a vivid awareness of time and place. This time and this place with all their energies and forces. So treasure revealers have a pure and total presence to whatever is happening. They're not in some fantasy Buddhist world. They're practicing in their place, in their time. And the Dharma that emerges is completely congruent to that time and place. Sixthly, Turtons have a deep connection with all others. They have an active love. They want to share the treasures. They know that they are simply the custodians of the treasures, and the treasures of the Dharma need to be shared at the right time. In Padmasambhava's advice to the treasure revealers, after talking a lot about renunciation, he says, if you do not have compassion... The root of your Dharma practice is rotten. So we need to think of ourselves, as the treasure revealers do, as being mediums for the Dharma, passing it on. The Padma Kaitang, like other termas, is full of riches. It has so many things going on on in it. It's full of cryptic sayings. It has that oracular voice at times, filled with vision and prophecy. It paints vivid pictures of what might come and what could come and how the Dharma will always be so desperately needed and how the compassionate guru will never fail to grow brightly in the dark times. 
His vow, it says, grows stronger then. If we call to him in the darkness, he will grow even stronger. Bounty himself, not saying that he is a treasure revealer or an emanation of Padmasambhava, though he was named Ogyen Sangharakshita when Karcha Rinpoche bestowed on him the Padmasambhava Abhishekha. Bounty himself could on occasion speak with that oracular voice, that prophetic voice, that cryptic voice, especially in his poetry. And I hope we will continue to hear that voice calling out to us across time and space and get up and respond to that voice to transform the demons of our age from 1976. I come to you with four gifts. The first gift is a lotus flower. Do you understand? My second gift is a golden net. Can you recognise it? My third gift is a shepherd's round dance. Do your feet know how to dance? My fourth gift is a garden planted in a wilderness. Could you work there? I come to you with four gifts. Dare you accept them?